Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder, and welcome to the Viber Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viber, and life after the PhD. This is episode 32, and today I'm talking to Dr. Katie Shaw about her experiences as a thesis examiner. Katie's been involved in lots of Vibers, both as an internal and external examiner. So we talked about her experiences, and she shared some good advice for PhD candidates. So it's really great to be joined again by Dr. Katie Shaw this morning. Some of you will remember Katie from earlier episodes a few years ago when she first came on to tell us about her PhD in Viber, and then she came back to talk about uh, academic jobs. And today we're going to talk about examiners, but maybe Katie, to remind us all for new people who have just joined the podcast recently, could you tell us a little bit about your PhD and and what you do now? Yeah, sure. Um, My PhD was um, based on an archive of poetry written by miners and their families and communities during the 84 to 5 strike. Um, So I was approaching it really from a literary, from a cultural studies kind of background um, and thinking about revoicing that work and kind of putting it in dialogue with other um, cultural representations of the strike. So that was back in 2007, seven, I think. Um, and I obviously had my Viva then and since then have worked um, at several institutions. I did my PhD at Lancaster, then went on to work at Greenwich University. Um, and now I'm currently at Brighton. And uh, and that's changing soon though, isn't it? Because you're coming up north. I am. Where are you off to? I'm returning north. Yes. Um. Very soon, I'm joining Leeds Beckett University uh, as head of English. That's in a matter of mere weeks now. Or maybe you know, will have happened by the time this podcast goes out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Uh, so um, so when you when you move north, are you obviously going? to become head of English that's obviously a big step up in terms of uh, like responsibilities and admin things but are you looking forward what are you looking forward to most I guess is that a good question um it's a big question uh, I guess <laughs> I mean I suppose personally I'm looking forward to uh, going home because you know I'm from Newcastle originally a lot of my research involves the north and particularly thinking about uh, the kind of post-industrial regeneration of the north um, so I'm really looking forward to having the chance to be beside all of the institutions that I've been working with from down here so people like the Working Class Movement Library in Salford the National Coal Mining Museum quite a lot of the uh, research centres and institutes that are based in the north But I suppose professionally, I'm really just looking forward to working with a new team of staff and new students, because certainly my time at Brighton has really been defined by the people who I've worked with, um, both my colleagues and my students. So it'll be lovely to kind of have that fresh start and to think about, yeah, exploring a whole new adventure. That's really cool. Um, so you mentioned then your students uh, and obviously your staff as well. So part of your responsibilities you've had at Brighton uh, have been as a, a supervisor to some doctoral candidates. Yes. Uh, but you've also um, been on, I suppose, a different side of that relationship with doctoral candidates as examiner. So uh, 
Have you done that a lot since you've been at Brighton or did you do it before at Greenwich as well? I had some experience at Greenwich, but I think by virtue of the fact that your academic career and your experience obviously grows, the requests for um, me to go off and examine uh, PhDs have increased over time. Uh, and now I'm kind of getting more requests than I ever have before. Mm. But I also think that's a lot to do with, obviously, your critical accumulation of publications in a field um, and the, the growth of the area that you work in as well. And I think the areas that I'm looking at at the moment in terms of 21st century writings um, and a lot to do with very recent histories, they seem to be really proliferating across uh, people's PhDs and people's publications. So it seems quite a, a fashionable area to be researching in. Yeah. So how do you how do you get approached as an examiner? Because I'm guessing you don't just suddenly get a, a letter or an email one day saying, can you do this? And it's in two months time. Do, do people woo you? I have had um, a massive parcel arrive at my office and it just be somebody's uh, thesis with a letter saying, would you mind? Um, and I suppose that's for me is kind of as valid an approach as an email. I would never say I've been wooed. Um, I look <laughs> forward to that day uh, where flowers and chocolates arrive, etc. But at the moment, no. I mean, it tends to be um, one of two ways, really. Either the supervisor will contact you formally or informally. So I've had it happen at conferences where somebody's come up to me and said, oh, I'm supervising a candidate in this area. Um, is that the kind of thing you would be prepared to or be interested in examining? Or I've received an email from the supervisor or from the registrar, from the head of department. Um, sometimes actually from the student themselves, although increasingly rarely. Um, a lot of students who particularly have been working on an author I've been publishing about or a specific period um, will obviously be circulating the same kind of academic events and, and symposia as I am. Um, and they often say, oh, you know, I'm doing this project at the moment. Uh, and would you mind me contacting you when it does get to this final stage, even if it's just for some informal advice? And of course, that's the kind of thing that you always want to support because, you know, we, we've all been in that position hunting for an examiner. Yeah. So um, how many times have you examined now, do you think? Oh, that is a good question. Off the top of my head, maybe six or seven. Um, but that is PhD. So I've been brought in to do a lot of um, kind of intermediate work in terms of what various institutions call either upgrade panels so between the MPhil registration and the PhD, also on the MRES or MAs by research. Um, so that, that actually that increasingly seems to be a growth, a growth field. Um, I've done quite okay. a few MAs in the past few years. And so for the PhDs, uh, have those mostly been as external or have you done a, a couple of internal exams as well? I think they've mostly been external, actually, um, specifically in my area. I've done a lot of internal ones across the arts and humanities, particularly related to um, candidates who have external funding, so AHRC or consortium style funding. But really, the external ones have been the main source of my experience today. OK. And so when you... When you come to, to sort of sit down and start preparing to examine, uh, what, what sort of things are going through your mind? I suppose, more broadly, what are the expectations, do you think, of, of the Viva or of your role? 
Um, my my first thought is that it is a huge privilege, um, but also a huge responsibility that you're always incredibly flattered to be approached. But the nature of that role is such that you can never commit to it lightly. The amount of work that is involved in examining a PhD is substantial. And therefore, you can never really commit yourself unless you're willing um, and also able and have the support mechanisms around you to give you the time to devote to it. Um, and I would never I would never commit to a project that I didn't think that A, I could examine well or B, that I didn't had the time to give. Um, so that's my first thought always when something passes my desk that it's incredible flattering and it's wonderful but what can I bring to that particular project because if for a second I think I don't have enough time or if there's somebody else in the field who I know who would actually be more appropriate and maybe of more use to the students then of course I will always throw that into the mix um, so that's yeah. the first consideration really um, I, I just, maybe we'll, we'll pick up a couple of the others in a second but just out of curiosity how much time do you think um, you well, you might not be able to speak for everybody, but how much time do you think you spend roughly? Because I mean, I there used to be, and there probably still are, these urban myths, you know, about examiners, and they just you know skim read the thesis on the train, you know, to 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 the to the viva. Um, but like a lot of other myths about the viva, I'm fairly certain that that is a myth, at least at least today. Um, how much time do you think you have to invest? Um, it's very difficult to say overall because every okay. PhD is different and yeah. the some are very easy to read and therefore very easy to digest and quick to consume initially. So when you do your initial read through, it reads well, it's intelligible, um, it's got a good argument, it's coherent, and therefore there is less time on the initial read. That's not to say that you then stick it in your desk drawer with a note saying, you know, by the way, when I've got to go and do this, have a look at it again. Um, but then there's the other side where you get a project through that doesn't really resemble that, that is far more difficult to engage with um, and is problematic and does raise questions. And that's really when, for me, the element of dialogue with the um, with the supervisor or with the um, internal examiner can come into play at a later stage because those kind of projects, the ones where you know it isn't going to be straightforward, that there are some perhaps quite fundamental problems with it. Um, they kind of raise alarm bells at an early stage and you know you're going to have to invest a little bit more time perhaps, not just in the lead up to the to the Viva, but also thinking if something's going to have to go through quite substantial uh, revisions or even the challenges to whether it is going to kind of pass at all, um, you're, it's going to be more of a long-term commitment. Yeah, and I suppose you don't really know until you until you open it. No, you don't. Would that be fair to I say? Think that's yeah. fair to say, yes. Um, and also, even if you have any kind of inkling, like anything, you should never presume. And it's not until you know you get all the way through one read through that you have a even vague idea of the project. Because quite a few, you know, in terms of writing, quite a few projects take a while to get going. Or the first chapter, if it's been written chronologically, reads very differently to the last chapter that was written three years on um, when, you know, they're on top of the research. So it just it completely depends upon the individual and also upon the project and increasingly upon the kind of support and supervision they've had at their institution. Yeah. When you when you come to examine then, I suppose before the Viva, when you get the thesis and you've read it through, what sort of other things uh, do you do? You've mentioned contacting um, the internal 
and but do you I suppose are you are you looking at the the papers that people have in the bibliography and and checking those sorts of things or, or what other stuff do you have to do in terms of kind of procedural things there is obviously um a kind of a pre in some cases there's a pre viva report um and also you know you're going to prepare for a meeting with the with the internal on the day of the event so you're kind of constantly making notes and thinking about how you can gather information um, and kind of almost mental prompts as to some of the issues and you're marking up the document and obviously thinking about the sources thinking about what they have and haven't looked at because I suppose for me I always I, I kind of approach my own fiber and I do I try and encourage my students to do the same as an opportunity because it's very rare that you're ever going to have um, those people in that room or reading your work with kind of such close attention to detail ever again and as you know as an academic writer now myself there's times you wish you could just send off a book draft to somebody and say can you just have a read of this and mark up every single issue or error or thing that you might question because <laughs> yeah. you never get that again and it's such a rare thing that it's a real opportunity that, that you know that the candidate has to take advantage of um, so I try and always give as much detail as possible. And certainly uh, a lot of people I know have, who I've examined with, we always just give the candidate our annotated copy with, you know, all of our scroll on alongside our reports. Because for me, that is a really, really valuable part of the process. It's very, it's interesting. You, you've just mentioned that um, being able to give your annotated copy on because I, I was asked that same question just this week. Uh, by by some candidates in a, in a workshop whether that was something that was appropriate to do um and that's the first time i've been asked that so i was i said well you know you can always ask yeah. and check but um it's not something that i've heard of before is that um it's something, is that something it's something that i've always actually been asked to do by either the examiner or the student not the examiner sorry the supervisor or the student um at the yeah. end of the session they've always asked though can we can we take that off your hands because quite often you've traveled to the other end of the country abroad with a massive <laughs> document um, and you think well ultimately i've got my notes my report that i'm going to write but this is you know or you can take it away and then send it back with your report but it's ultimately of much more use to the student and to the supervisor at that stage than it is to you and again for me it's part of almost the kind of the value for money of the of the experience for the student as well that they have had two independent sets of eyes on that work and increasingly i think that you know the students you're meeting and i'm meeting are a lot savvier and they are orientating themselves towards publication quite rapidly um after passing through this stage is kind of rite of passage so it's 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 really promising and it's quite comforting that they are asking for this because they recognize that the sooner they can get it as, as you know as, as accurate and as readable and publishable as possible then that's going to hopefully really propel them on career-wise yeah yeah, oh, that's that's really cool. Um, when you, as time gets closer to the Viber, does, is there any kind of, um, I don't know, like changing of gears in terms of your preparation as an examiner? Because obviously you will have you will have read the thesis and, and annotated it, I guess, by that point. But are there any things that you're doing, say, in the in the days just running up to the Viber, or um, I suppose you're trying to clear. Uh, the other work that you have to do in your normal academic role? Uh, a lot of it is about balancing because so often when you're asked to go and examine um, a thesis, it is a very long way away. And increasingly, particularly 
for me the nature of my research a lot of it has been about either northern writers or northern communities and so being based in Brighton that has involved a lot of travel um so yeah logistically it is a lot of diary clearing but also always for me making sure that I've got time booked in the diary um that I can re-familiarize myself with the project because as you say, you never want to think that your examiner is running between trains and taxis, desperately trying to flick through that massive document on their way in on the morning of the event. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know of anybody who would do that. And I've not heard or experienced anything like that. Um, but I do think there is a, a lot of urban myth and also a lot of anxiety because, you know, it is presented as an and is an examination and that word carries with it a lot of very negative associations and also experiences for a lot of students and increasingly the idea of an oral presentation or an oral examination um, seems to make a lot of candidates feel particularly vulnerable so it's important for me as an examiner that I've spent adequate time in the days leading up to that and preparing and getting to know the work so if we do ever end up in a situation where the candidate is clearly drying up or is nervous or is scared or is a bit lost you can step in because you know the work and I always fear yeah. that if you don't know the work you can't really help that dialogue happen yeah and am I right in thinking and this is this is something I've told people before uh, and so I, I'm hoping it's true um, that in your experience you've as as examiner and you know when you meet internals from other institutions and so on you you both prepared questions essentially you both thought about which areas you want to talk about or you know maybe interrogate a strong word but ask the student about and even some of the kinds of questions specifically yeah that yeah that is correct yeah normally um the morning before or just prior to the um actual event you will sit down with the um internal quite often i think the work the days have worked best when the event has been in the afternoon and it gives you the morning to kind of get to the institution to speak to or have lunch with um, the internal examiner and share your pre-viva report and to think quite carefully about the areas you both agree on if you've both approached anything differently if you have any shared concerns and luckily to date um, uh, there's been a broad consensus in my experience between internal um, and external on some occasions there has been some quite profound differences and it's at that meeting that I suppose you you can start moving around the ideas and the areas that you want to crystallize for the actual the actual event um I suppose um I'm trying to think how to phrase this question exactly. Um, there is an assumption, I think, made by a lot of students, and this is from my experience of talking with them in lots of different fields. There's an assumption that for examinations which are just an internal examiner and an external with no sort of independent chair, there's an assumption that the internal is there purely to moderate and the external is there as the expert and most of the questions are going to come from the external and the internal will ask a couple. What do you think about that? Because I, I think that, that there is kind of a, it is a misconception, but in your experience, is that is that right or wrong? Um, I think that in in some cases it can appear that way to the candidate or it can be presented that way. Um, however, the the internal is 
or should be um, as equally critical and objective as the external. And certainly in the, one, in the cases that I've been involved with that have worked really effectively, they have asked as searching um, and as profound questions as the external. If anything, the internal um, can often not be a subject specialist or specifically a specialist in that very, very small area the person is writing on. So their questions might necessarily be a little bit more broad, be a bit more about the presentation or about the structure of the argument. Um, but that can actually prove a strength because, you know, the first the first important question of, of the whole event is, you know, what is this research about? What contribution to, to knowledge does it make? And also, why does it matter? And in a way, sometimes those questions are easier coming from an intern who doesn't really know the field as well because if they come from someone like me who's been called in as an expert in the area they can just sound a bit silly because i i have a clear argument myself about why that field matters and yeah. why that area matters so sometimes having that critical distance of the internal can be really useful but certainly i think i agree in some cases the perception from the student that the internal is a good cop and the external is a bad cop and that <laughs> really shouldn't be how it works no. Um, when you when you sit down to to talk with the the internal, well, I suppose in your role as external, when you sit down to talk with the internal, um, what are the big questions I suppose that the two of you have? Because you you said like, uh, well, you you said uh, in the last few minutes that it's about you know looking to see you know where you agree on your analysis of it and and questions and so on. But are there any big things which drive you? in terms of preparing in that meeting? I think overall it's about judging whether the work is of an appropriate standard for the award primarily um, and as soon as you've talked about that and, and by no means is that a given that is often the question that all of these other things orbit around um, it's often about very micro things about whether it's presented correctly um, whether it's the appropriate level of discussion analysis that we have to sometimes reassure ourselves that sections are the students' own work, um, that the student sometimes adequately understands um, the ideas or the issues that are being discussed. And then, again, a broader level about what is the contribution to knowledge? You know, can you walk away and be able to sum up this thesis in three or four sentences? Uh, can you certify its originality? Sometimes it's creativity. Um, if it's a creative writing project, for example, uh, thinking about its coherence, um, its integration in a field or whether it's you know a very interdisciplinary project and increasingly its clarity because certainly I think in some areas the, the, the quality of writing as I've said can evolve over the course of a project so it's just making sure that the entire project sits as a whole rather than seeming like the composite parts of three or four years work. Yeah so I suppose um, I think that leads on to my next question, which is, I suppose, what are the what are the things that you really look for and, and hope for both both in the thesis and the Bible? What is it that you think? Yes, this is what this is what I wanted to see. This is what I hope to find. Um, I hope always to find a happy candidate. I always hope that somebody is relishing the opportunity to be able to talk about their project because, you know, for any of us who've been in that seat on that day, you've spent three, four, five, six, seven, how many years working on this piece of um, writing and this piece of research and you've got to the point 
at which you know it hopefully inside out but also you were bored your friends your family people on the street anyone you can talk to about it you've bored them all to death with what you're doing because it's been all consuming and it's been everything you've been interested in for all that period so actually to be able to sit down and talk to people who are there specifically to hear you chat about this project you're passionate about should be an amazing opportunity so i always hope to find a candidate who is excited and willing to engage and wants to talk to us about their project and i think because that's how i approached my own viva i was really surprised when i encountered instances of candidates just not wanting to talk or giving one word answers and i suppose it took me a while to orientate myself to thinking about okay they're, they're perceiving it as a quite um, restrictive examination in which there is maybe a right or wrong answer and sometimes they feel like they're being judged from the second they walk in the room before they even say anything so I always now recognize that the person who kind of comes in on the day comes in knowing that in a way they've already kind of they feel vulnerable because they've already exposed part of themselves that you know you've read a year's worth of work their work and they obviously feel vulnerable because you're there to kind of pass comment or a perceived judgment upon it. Um, so I always hope to see positivity and eagerness in candidates. But obviously, I understand when that perhaps now doesn't always happen. Actually, that, I mean, I, I've never quite thought about it that way, because I, I, obviously with my own Viva um, and my memories of it are starting to fade now, which is why I'm glad that I got someone to interview me about it. Mm. I'd be interested to talk to to can that might be a question I ask in future is how did people did people feel vulnerable? Because I think that was certainly my perception. Uh, I think, and it may be a false memory, but I, I remember going into the room and my two examiners being sat there like judges on a reality show, you know, sat behind a desk, just kind of like looking at the front of the room where I was going to give a you know a presentation to start. And it may be a false memory, but... If it is, then I think it's probably a false memory out of that feeling, like you say, of, of vulnerability. Yeah, and I think certainly even the the kind of the the physical organisation of the room can make a lot of difference because I've definitely noticed when you're put in a, a classroom or a seminar room where there are tables, they always stick you behind two tables and the poor candidate is on a chair without a table, um, having to kind of scramble around in the document in front of you. And it does echo and mock the idea of an interview, uh, you know, or, or kind of, yeah, that they're being being brought to call and I think certainly uh, very shortly after doing um, an examination a few years ago I was called up on my second round of jury service and being in court it just brought back all of the images of seeing this kind of this very scared defendant in front of me who felt very exposed and vulnerable and like they were at the mercy of somebody else's decision and for any but he who sat in that chair and you know we both have you know how it feels and for me I can't ever forget how that felt there is always a part of you that feels exposed and anxious because you don't know what the outcome is going to be and even if you believe in your thesis and you think it's solid and you don't think that these people would have turned up or it would have been organized if you wouldn't have passed there's always the element of not knowing and so for me as an examiner the most important thing on my mind is putting that student at at rest really um, and making them feel relaxed and engaging them in conversation before we actually get into the the real meat of the discussion just so they recognize that this is a professional human situation in you know and we're there for them 
we're not there to work against them or to make things deliberately difficult for them. And I have, unfortunately, and increasingly not in the arts and humanities, thank goodness, but I've heard of horror stories in the social sciences and the sciences, and again, it could be urban myths about all the politics, all the awful politics of um, Aviva in terms of, you know, examiners against candidates or examiners against each other, um, you know, these personality politics. And luckily, I've never experienced any of that because I think it should be really uh, an enabling experience. We've talked a little bit about what your, I mean, your hope there is, you know, for the, for the candidate. Um, other things that you think, um, because I, I imagine most people listening to this are candidates rather than examiners looking for tips. Um, so what advice would you have for candidates you know, from your from an examiner's perspective? What, what things, sort of things can they do that I suppose might avoid some of those feelings of nervousness or you know, to present the best version of themselves on the day? I think obviously having some kind of mock viva with their supervisor um, or with an internal volunteer for the university can work wonders. Uh, and certainly the, the candidates I've seen who've been active and gone out and presented at postgraduate conferences or at other academic events in the lead up to the viva are used to defending and answering questions about their project. So I think that's a very simple thing that a lot of people can do, um, even in the last year, last year and a half of the project, just to kind of start warming themselves up and gearing up to that idea of an oral defence. But really, candidates perform best. And it's not just about a PhD candidate. It's about any defence of any argument in any profession. We perform best when we know what we're talking about, when we're familiar with the thesis, when we can be prepared to consider alternative perspectives um, that you should maybe be open to welcoming criticism on certain topics or different ways of approaching ideas um, and always be prepared and welcome to engage in discussions rather than closing down, giving one word answers or getting defensive because it's all part of the dialogue really of the event. Yeah, I think that it's a really... um... I've noticed this um, myself when talking with people. There's there's that very very clear line that people need to try and realise between uh, be you know defending the thesis and being defensive about the thesis. Yes, definitely. And I think a defensive candidate um, is always going to raise more question marks from an examiner because of course we want to see. Um, a rigorous defence and of course sometimes examiners might deliberately ask questions that agitate the candidate to make them um, quite rigorously defend a particular area or even in some cases we can be almost kind of prodding around one area and the candidate can either be consciously or unconsciously um, avoiding answering the very direct question we're trying to ask so sometimes we do ask agitational questions to kind of spring them into life and to make them give us the answer that we're looking for um, perhaps about politics or about why they've attacked it from a particular angle or often what they haven't done or what they might do differently because for me one of the most interesting parts of thinking about a project and talking to the author is thinking about the choices behind it and also what went wrong or what would you have done if you you know if you did it again what different choices would you make because it is a it's a human activity and often a three or four year project is a journey and it has you know it has a very distinct path which ends up being reflected in in the thesis but there have also been lots of side roads that candidates go down that obviously lead 
to nothing or they don't end up following up for whatever reason. And sometimes they're not reflected in the end project, but they can be as useful and as informative for what you finally get given as the official history, if you like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've we've talked a bit about the things that you, you hope for. Um, uh, in some circumstances, when you've come to examine a thesis, it's it ultimately led to... Um, uh, failing at the Viva, so obviously being as sensitive as possible with this. Um, what sort of things can can lead to that sort of situation? Um, it's very difficult. Um, it's a hot, it's never one thing. It's yeah. always a real combination. Um, often of things that are beyond the control of certain people involved. So it can sometimes be changes to supervisory arrangements as staff leave institutions. Um, and that's always a particular issue pre-REF where you get a lot of movement. Um, and that can lead to people finishing up projects who perhaps aren't experts in the field or a sense of disengagement between the candidate and their new supervisor. It can sometimes be students who have had uh, continuity issues, who have come to the project and had to go away from it again for whatever reason coming back. Um, it can be issues to do with perception of quality or um, of experience. It can be a whole host of things, but it's the saddest time when you have to sit there and consider the fact that a piece of work is not going to pass as it stands on that day and that they're going to have to be in some cases major major revisions or rewrites um to make it of the appropriate quality because you know what the implications of that are for the candidate sometimes whether it's yeah. economic whether it's social uh you know in terms of their their age or their occupation and it's it's really difficult um but i'm really pleased to say that not once in those cases that i've seen um, have any of those things influenced the decision because the decision is always the quality of the work and the candidate knows that ultimately I think that they owe it to themselves to produce the best thing that they can because you get one stab at the PhD um, and it's got to be something that stands forever and something you're proud of and quite often when we return that feedback but frame it in that way and say you know we want this to be the thing that you're proud of as you know your highest educational qualification perhaps of a lifetime that it has to stand up um and we can help you getting it standing up and your supervisory team can help you as well but just that there is a further stage so i really think it's about how it's it's communicated really as a as a step forward, another unexpected step, albeit, but another step rather than kind of a, a final termination. Yeah, I think this is I'm, I'm only I'm saying this because I think it's really clear to kind of get it on the record from an examiner's perspective. I uh, nearly every workshop that I deliver, I have somebody who asks me or who has this communication that they're coming at it from the perspective of, you know, this is failing until we see enough evidence that it's it's good. And can we kind of can we put that to bed? Do you think is that that is just not the case, is it? That examiners approach, you know, they get a thesis and think, well, until I see any evidence, this is a fail. Uh, that's I mean, to me, that's crazy. Um, it's almost as crazy as opening a document and thinking this is going to pass until I see something awful. Um, yeah. You, you go at it completely objectively and you don't know. Um, and if you presume either way before you've read it even two or three times, then I think it's a bad call. 
and also hopefully as an examiner you again you've been there and you know what it takes to, to create a piece of research that size so you'd never do that to somebody else because well I suppose a it would never be um, in my nature to presume on my professional judgment but also even if for whatever reasons you were inclined to think negatively about an area or positively you'd know the amount of effort that got into it and you would hopefully always treat that candidate how you would have wanted to be treated when you were in their position but no I mean that's for me that is just a really odd way of looking at the experience because I think most academics that I've ever encountered and I think one really really good thing about academia particularly in the UK is how supportive academics are not only of each other and each other's research but also of new academics coming through into the field um, and it's very very rare that I ever hear of a PhD candidate who's contacted any academic even quite famous well-known ones not received a reply not received some kind of positive guidance or judgment so to hear that said I, that doesn't correlate with my experience at all yeah yeah is there anything else that you think we need to talk about Katie or that we haven't covered that you thought we would be good to talk about um I suppose the only thing that I always tell my PhD students um is to use that event and to think about having the external with you to talk about your future trajectory and also the future plans for the work and I know we've touched on this already in terms of um, students perhaps being a little bit more savvy about academic publication and asking for the annotated copies of the thesis back but you know you've got the person in front of you who likely has published lots of things in the field who could be a member of editorial board or an editor of a journal who has contacts and I often think, even in terms of networking, um, that the student should, as a question at the end of the session, ask for advice on where they take this work next, on how they can work it up, whether that's through journal articles or through a monograph, etc., um, and perhaps what the next stage is for that project. Because again, your examiner is there as a resource. You know, it's part of the project, and you really need to maximise your use of that resource on that occasion so I suppose that's the only thing that I always remind my students of because often you're so relieved at the end of the viva um, you wouldn't really care what happened as long as you could get out that room and text and phone everyone and say I passed or whatever um, but yeah. always take the time because that person is never going to be in that situation with you ever again yeah I think that's a really good point and um, again from experience I, I know I'm saying this a few times today but from experience I know of candidates who think that it's wrong to ask questions of examiners because somehow, you know, asking for someone else's opinion might seem like a weakness. Uh, I, again, like you said with, with something else we talked about, that seems like an odd uh, conception to me. I think it's so about the really... perception of the student-teacher um, relationship, yeah. which actually isn't what the viva is at all. What it should be is a, a kind of a, a situation where you're both critical partners and you're engaging in dialogue, you're engaging in a conversation which should be productive. It should be heading somewhere positive. And of course, as part of that, you might have to highlight things that are lacking or that are absent or that can be improved. But I think the overall tone and the overall direction of that conversation should always be positive and we should always be aiming for a good outcome so hopefully if you make the student feel like that from the word go they are a little bit less defensive and they would perhaps be a little bit more open to the idea of asking you questions as well yeah 
Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Katie. I think to finish up, though, I do want to ask that quick question. What's the best thing about being an examiner for you? The best thing is meeting the people who are going on to shape your field. That is the best thing. It's when you find somebody whose work excites you and you see how it clearly matters. Um, it's almost like being there at at the beginning and it is it's the beginning of their career and it's a really exciting opportunity because certainly with all of the examinations I've done you kind of you if they're in your field you know all the fields we work in are relatively small even international ones and you follow them you you track with their progress and you see them at conferences and you see their publications coming out and it's lovely because you can see how they've progressed um, and you know that you were always an important part of that kind of that academic rite of passage in their career. So, yeah, maybe I am a bit sentimental about my, about my ex-candidates, but I think it's it's a real honour to be, uh, you know, to have played a part in their in their life path in that way. So for me, that is definitely the best part of the whole experience. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Katie, and thanks for all your uh, thanks for all your contributions today. You're very um, and and for being the first person to be on the podcast three times. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. But I'm sure I'm sure we'll have find um, reason to talk again in the future. Yes, let's improve on the hat trick. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much, Katie. Lovely. Thank you, Nathan. That's all for this episode. The first Ask an Examiner special. Many thanks to Katie for joining me today, and to you for listening. If you've got any questions about this episode or about any other, then please get in touch either by leaving a comment on the website or by emailing podcast at viva-survivors.com or by tweeting at viva-survivors or at Dr. Ryder. If you'd like to support the Viva Survivors podcast, then you can, um, obviously by tweeting it to people, but also by becoming a patron of the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash Dr. Ryder. Until next time, I'm Nathan Ryder, and thanks for listening.